Exodus chapter 21 and verse 2. Exodus chapter 21, verse number 2. Thank you, Jesus. If you buy a Hebrew slave, may he serve for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. If he was single when he became your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, his wife must be freed with him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year. But his wife and children will still belong to his master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. Let's pray this morning. I know it's an odd passage of scripture. And uh, I believe this is a message, I actually preached this roughly a year ago, but I felt strongly at the conclusion of our little series on, on uh, God giving our church an open door, that this was an important message to preach again this morning. So would you pray with me and open up your heart to the Lord and ask Him to speak to you today. Jesus, we thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your presence that is here this morning. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. I pray that you would shed light onto our hearts and onto your word this morning. And I pray that you would speak to us directly and help us to understand what your word has to say this morning. We give you the thanks, the glory, the praise, and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a good attitude, you can sit down. I don't know what that, that means for me, but uh, <laughs> I have to stay standing. So. I have a good attitude, don't worry. When you read this passage in Exodus, it really flies in the face of what we consider to be good in our Western mind. Um, and I say our Western mind. I know not everybody here is, is from North America, North America and the West, but this, this idea of slavery largely in our world has become... Uh, thankfully, something of a taboo, something that's frowned upon and not, not, not accepted as good or uh, fair or even godly. And so why would the book of Exodus, why would God write laws about slavery that seem to allow slavery under certain conditions? What what is going on there? Surely you would you expect to open up your Bible and read, slavery is abolished, slavery is condemned, God doesn't want anyone to be a slave, and everyone who is a slave should go free. That's the kind of verse I expect to be clear and written out, big, bold letters in Scripture. But you have to realize that you're reading a collection of books that are written for different purposes. The Bible itself 
is a whole, but it is a collection of different books written at different stages of history and in different writing styles. The Bible is composed of actually many different writing styles from, from law and instruction to genealogies and history and, and then there's poetry, prose. Uh, some of the most beautiful poetry is written in scripture and I love even how even though it was not written in English, it translates so nicely into the English language. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Uh, he, he leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they cover me. All these, these, these poems from the Psalms, they translate so nicely into English. And so you have to realize that the Bible has different sections, different writing styles, and is written to different people. The Bible even has personal letters written from one person to another, that we get to be the third party reading that letter that was written to either an individual or a group of individuals, and we have to understand it from that perspective. We also have to realize that the Bible is not written to our individualistically minded North American culture. The Bible was written to a collectivist group of people that did not value the individual above the collective. The family was more important than the individual. The, 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 the shame and the honor of behaving and, and living right was, was a collective mindset rather than a I'm guilty or innocent based on my own actions. So when we read the Bible with the right lenses on, with the right history in mind and the right, the right context then we can fully begin to understand what it was saying and why it was said that way. A parallel passage in the book of Deuteronomy gives you a little bit more information. Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor, in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free, you shall not let him go empty handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your fleshing, threshing floor, and out of your wine press. And the Lord God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day, uh, I command you this today, if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he was well off with you, then you shall take it all and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And if your female slave you shall do the same. And it shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you for six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. See, when you read the Bible as a whole, and not individual snippets, you get a better sense of what is being said and why. See, for, for this period of time in history, slavery was commonplace. And slavery was everything horrible that you could imagine slavery to be. 
Slavery was forced labor. Slavery removed your rights. You were considered to be cattle and, and livestock rather than actual human beings with a soul, with a spirit, with a heart, with free will, with rights. There was no such thing as a human bill of rights in these days. So if you were a slave, it was, it was depending on who you were a slave to, it was a fate worse than death. It was not uncommon for people when they were sold into slavery. If they got sold to the wrong person and they knew the reputation of that slave owner, that they would take their own life in order to avoid having to be enslaved to this particular group, people, race, or individual. But for the Jews, God wanted them to be holy. And holy doesn't mean halo over their head, doesn't mean they were clothed in gold and white and, and that they were, you know, radiating in beauty. Holy means separated and different from the rest. God called his people to be holy. God still calls all of his people to be holy. God wants those who are called by his name to be different from the rest of the world. And so God called his nation of Israel to be holy, separated from the world. And so he gave them laws about slavery. You may say, well, why didn't God just abolish slavery? That would have been different. That would have been separate from the rest of the world. But it would not have met a very real need in their society. See, that makes sense today. In North America, there's no need for slavery. You don't need to be enslaved to anybody. You don't need to have be owned by a person because you can go to the government and get some kind of assistance. And it may not be great assistance, and it might you might even look at the assistance as a form of slavery in some cases. Where uh, you know I, 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 we've talked to people, and people have been in our church from time to time who were under government assistance and found it very difficult to get out of the system. Because, you know, they're, they're given so much a month, and then if they get a job, that, that amount is cut like in half. And then, but the job that they're making money from doesn't make the same money that they were getting when they were on assistance. And so now they're in a real bind, and so they're, it's, it's, a, it's a juggle. It's difficult to get out of this particular system. And so there was welfare. There's, there's assistance. There's agencies. There's churches that will put together bags of groceries that will, you know, run food drives. There's, there's things around in our North America. So we look around and say there's no need for slavery. Slavery should be abolished. And I say amen to that and praise God for that. And that should be preached from the housetops. But in this day, there was no such thing as welfare. Governments didn't have programs assisting uh, uh, women who were widows or children who were orphans. There was no orphanage. There was no society. There was no children's aid society that came around. And if there was a report of, of abuse or mistreatment, then that parent would be held accountable. None of that was around in those days. And so God said, slavery is going to serve a purpose. We saw it in Deuteronomy. He says, if you see your brother in need, if he is poor and unable to meet his basic needs for him and his family, then you can bring him on your land and essentially he becomes a slave. He becomes a slave, but only for six years. He receives no paycheck, but his needs are taken care of. 
he receives no no benefits medically necessarily, but but everything he has need of housing, food, clothing, and employment is all taken care of. He doesn't have to worry about his his wife or his children. They are also given jobs and and paid in food and lodging for their labor. And he said it's only for six years. And at the end of the six years, he's supposed to leave free. At the end of six years, his his term of labor is over. In fact, this is more of a debt repayment system than it is anything else. And what I love about this is God created an entry point and an exit point. God said, there, if you see someone is poor, in debt, they can't pay their debts, they're going to go impoverished, they're going to go without, then you can hire them on, not pay them, but basically cover all of their debts for six years. And at the end of that six years, they should be able to get back up on their feet and begin to make a living for themselves. But guess what? When they leave your house, you don't send them away empty-handed. You give them livestock. You give them sheep. You give them oxen. You give them cattle. You give them resources. Then you take some of your best wine from your vineyards and you put it in their hands. You give them something that they can start their own livelihood with. You give them something when they leave because when they were with you, they worked for nothing and you received the wages, the benefit of a hired laborer without having to pay them any wages. Slavery for the Jews was not meant to be something that oppressed or, 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 or took over another nation, but slavery was meant to be a way to pay off a debt, to, to, to recover someone who was impoverished or someone who was poor, someone to avoid destitution and famine and starvation. Slavery was God's way of creating an opportunity for his people to get out of debt. The law even protected slaves from being abused by their masters. According to the scripture in Exodus 21.20, if you killed a slave, it merited great punishment for you as a slave owner. If you permanently injured your slave, if you had some kind of system of corporal punishment when they didn't do what they were supposed to do, and you permanently injured them when they were forever affected by that injury, then your slave instantly received his freedom and all the benefits that we mentioned before. Slaves who ran away from their master were effectively freed. If you ran away from your master because he was oppressive, you could run to a place called the City of Refuge. There were seven of them all around Israel, and they were strategically placed that no matter where you were in Israel, it would only take you one day of travel to get to the City of Refuge. And once you got into that City of Refuge, it didn't matter what your history was, it didn't matter who you were, who you belonged to, what your slave was, you were safe in that city, and you had the right as a slave to appeal to a magistrate or a justice or a court to determine whether or not you were being truly mistreated. Slaves got one day of rest every single week. They didn't work 24-7. They were given mandated time off. Slaves had the right to buy their freedom if somehow through their own industry, through their own work ethic, they began to amass their own amount of wealth. They could pay off their debt early and effectively get out of their enslavement. And every six years, they were automatically set free. 
By these standards, Israel was light years away from every other nation in the world. Now, Pastor, you're, you're telling me that Israel obeyed these laws perfectly? Absolutely not. That's part of the reason why God wrote them so many letters and sent them so many prophets, because they didn't follow these rules. They didn't always do what God wanted them to do, but God still told them what to do. God still wrote it down in his word. This is how you're going to treat people. If they're down and out, this is how you're going to help them out. This is how It wasn't so much of oppression as it was giving somebody a way out of the pit that they had dug themselves into. Now, why talk about all this today? What does this have to do with us? We've been talking for the last few weeks about God giving this church an open door. I believe God is opening a door to the refugee and the immigrant population that is growing in our city. I believe God is, is putting an open door before us for us to reach out to them and show them love and show them the love of God by, by just meeting a few basic needs and then giving them an opportunity to connect with the church that would be something of a community for them and a place where they could hear about the love of Jesus, be baptized in his name, be set free from every sin, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Come on, that's why we're here as a church. That's what we're here for is to reach those who do not have the gospel and the message of hope in their life. God wants this church to be a gateway church. A, door that, that people can come through from every walk of life, from every ethnicity, from every language group, and, and every walk of life, from, from, the, from the shelterless people that live on the streets to those who live in affluent neighborhoods within the city. God wants this church to be a gateway church that opens the door and lets them in, but not just opening the door to let them in, but God also is going to call people from this church to go out and start another church. I believe God is going to call people from this church, young people, children, elders, elders, uh, people that are here sitting on the views. God's going to put a calling on your life to go from this church, and you're going to be set sent from this church with support to start a new church or to be a missionary in another country, in another land. Why? Because the gospel has got to get out into the world. Jesus said, go ye into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. We talked about that last week. And so if we have these doors of opportunity that God is putting at our feet, he's putting in our door. Talked last week about casting your bread on the water. Take the seed that God has given you and throw it out onto the water, the flooded banks of the river, because there's a new opportunity. God is, is calling this church to give sacrificially. God is calling this church to support various ministries and, and, and works so that, that the gospel can be spread. He said, cast your bread on the water, and in many days that bread will return to you. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about souls. I'm talking about when you invest in I Am Global, when you invest your money into the missionaries that are going to be visiting us here at the end of the month, when you invest your money into some groceries that are expensive. I know. I know what, 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 what used to come in the house for, for a regular grocery bill is not it's not the same amount of food coming in for the same amount of money. I understand there's a pinch. I understand that our our our, our, our bills are increasing, but our wages are decreasing. Or staying the same. Hopefully they're not decreasing. 
I understand all of that, but we're going to cast our bread on the water. We're going to sow a little bit here into our, our food drive, and then we're going to give a little bit into our, our I Am Global offering, and we're going to give a little bit into our missions offering, and we're going to give a little bit into our, our Christmas for Christ offering that we'll do in December. We're going to continue to give in our tithes and our offering. Why? We're spreading the gospel a little bit here, a little seed there, a little a little seed here, and a little seed there, because we're going to, we, God wants us to get the message out, get the, get the word out, the opportunity, the battle, Banks are flooded. The people are here. When I spoke to the ladies at the Welcome Center, they literally said, Ajax is in a refugee crisis right now. We're filling up hotels, and we don't have places for them to live. There's nowhere, there's no buildings, there's no housing, and the, the, if, if they wait on the housing list, it's going to be a 13-year wait. Imagine a, a refugee coming in with a little baby. If they wait for those 13 years, that child would have spent their entire, their entire elementary school education living in a hotel. And they're, they're working on it. They're trying. They're, they're doing what they can. That's why the Welcome Center's there, to, to help connect people with landlords that will open up their, their buildings and their homes for these families to find an adequate place to live. So, Pastor, what's this all about? We've been preaching about the open door. There's thousands of people in need right on our doorstep. Jesus said it like this, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already for harvest. Lift up your eyes and look out on the streets and see the hurt in people's faces. Lift up your eyes and look out into the coffee shops and see the couples in crisis trying to figure it out on their own. Lift up your eyes and look onto the streets and see the makeshift homes made out of old bed sheets, mattress pads, and broomsticks trying to hold up a place for the shelterless individual to live. Lift up your eyes and look on the streets as, the, uh, as people panhandle for money because it seems to be the only way they can make ends meet and find refuge for their home and their family. Look up, lift up your eyes and look on the Super 8, the, the hotel filled with refugees, people coming from other nations trying to escape violence or some kind of terrible thing. Lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white already for harvest. There is a door open for this church to do what it has been called to do. It, uh, there's an opportunity for us to lay hands on the sick and the Bible says they shall recover. There's opportunity for us to, to reach the lost and to see them saved. Uh, like my friend Josh Resar, who was a 400 a day cocaine addict uh, that found a, 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 a church in Peterborough. And he said the first time he went to that church, he took his cocaine went into the bathroom and the men's uh, bathroom at that church uh, and snorted a line of cocaine off the toilet seat. That's how messed up he was. Uh, but he left that bathroom, went back into the service uh, and, and found himself uh, weeping and crying in the presence of God. When the pastor made the altar call, he beelined himself down to the front of that, that church uh, and God delivered him in that instant from that $400 a day cocaine addiction. That's the door of opportunity God wants to set before us today. My friend Josh
Josh is an international evangelist preaching all over the world, all over Canada and North America, and all over the world is an international evangelist preaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good hope that is found in the presence of God. That's the door that is open for us. But with every door of opportunity, there's a door of surrender. Hear me this morning. For every door of great promise and great advancement for the kingdom, that's exciting to talk about. It's exciting for me to think about people receiving the Holy Ghost in these altars, seeing people baptized in these waters, not just by me, but by anybody who's teaching a Bible study to come in and say, Pastor, my, my, the person I've been teaching a Bible study to is ready to, for me to be baptized. I said, okay, meet me at the church in an hour. We'll get them baptized today. We won't even wait. We're not going to wait for a church service. We're going we're gonna to get it done now. We're going to get it done because the, the hour is short. The time is ripe and the harvest is now. I, I love preaching and thinking and dreaming about those things that God is literally going to fill every someone from every family in the city of Ajax with the gift of the Holy Ghost. That the revival God wants to bring to this city and this region is so great and so big. There isn't a, a building built yet in this Durham region that can house and hold the amount of people God wants to save and God wants to restore. That's what I love preaching about. But with every door of opportunity, there's a door of surrender. See, the law, the law stated that if, if you had a slave and you brought him into your home and you took care of his needs and his wife and you brought him into your house and they were well treated and they, they worked well, after the six years they were given their freedom with, with, with back pay in their pocket. But if the slave realized I don't, I don't know if I have the goods to make it out there on my own again. I love it here. This is a comfortable home. The man that I call master has been good to me. He's taking care of every foreseeable need. When my child had a toothache, he paid for the dentist bill. When my, when my kids were hungry, he met their needs. When it was time for feast days and celebration, his kids got gifts and, and blessings, but mine did too. I love working here. I want to work here for the rest of my life. I want my family to work here. For, I love the man that I'm working for. I love it. This is my new home. I, I, I thrive under his leadership. He's, he honors me. He treats me well. He doesn't treat me like a slave. He treats me like a valuable part of his family. And I've been missing that. And that's why I was struggling. And So I, I don't want to go back out to the world. I don't want to stay here. And God said, if that slave loves you and loves your family, then you can take him and present him before the Lord and then bring him to the door of your home. And you're going to pierce his ear. And when you pierce his ear, the instrument that pierces the ear to mark him as a slave for life will not only pierce his ear, but it will pierce the door of your house. You're going to drive that, that little ear piercing tool through his ear, and it's going to be stuck to the door. Obviously, they pull it out, and the earring goes in, and he's forever marked as a slave of this home. Why the door? 
What's with this weird ceremony of piercing somebody's ear to the door? What does that have to do with us? We've been talking about the significance of doors the last few weeks. A door is a gateway. A door often represents the whole house, right? You might say to a friend, Oh, thank you for coming to my house today. Well, the door is always the door is always open. But is it? Is that a true, like, is that a, a, a legally binding statement? No. Because you close the door at night and hopefully you lock it and bar it and chain it and have three or four different locks. If you're living in Ajax, hello, this is a little house on the prairie, okay? You, you ain't. This, hopefully you have more than one lock on your door and at night that door is shut. Well, what do you mean when you say the door is always open? You're talking about the door of your heart. You're talking about the access to my family, to whatever I have, it's open. If you need something, give me a ring, give me a call, and I will unbar and unlock and unchain that door even at an untimely moment of the night, and I will open the door again to you because it's you that we are. You have access to my home. You have access to all of me when I say the door is always open. The doorway was significant. It represented everything in the house. So when, when the slave's ear was pierced to the door, he became part of the family. When his ear was pierced and the, the, the awl went through his ear and drove into the wood posts of that door, it said that you're, you have now permanent access to the family. You're part of the family. A little blood is spilled as that all goes through. So your blood is now part of the door. You're now a blood relative of our home and of our family. You're a permanent fixture. You're never going to leave. You're forever committed to this place. The door was so important that God literally said to his people when they were in Egypt, take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of your home. And you'll be marked. Your whole family will be covered by the blood of that lamb. When the lamb's blood covered the doorpost and the lintel of the children of Israel in Egypt, they were covered. The angel of death could not come into the home and take the firstborn child because the blood was on the door. The door represented the whole family. The door represented the whole house. And when the blood covered the door, the blood covered the family. The blood covered the mother and the father and the children and the dog and the cat and the mice living underneath the table. It covered everybody in the house and now nobody was touched by the angel of death because the blood covered the door, i.e. the blood covered the whole family. The Lord even said in Deuteronomy 11 verse 18, he said, commit yourself wholeheartedly to these words of mine. Tie them to your hand. Wear them on your forehead as a reminder. Teach them to your children. You know the mark of the beast? Satan is such a bad copycat. Mark of the Beast comes in Revelation. Everyone's afraid of that. 666 number. You take the Mark of the Beast and you're, you're cooked forever. But God said, you know what? Before there was a Mark of the Beast, there was a Mark of me. You're to bind my law, my word to your hand and your forehead. 
Before the devil ever came along with the mark of the beast, there was a mark of God's word. There was a mark of God's law that said it's to be bound to you that it is where you work and it is where you think that my laws and my words and my decrees, they're, they're to be part of your whole being and part of your whole life. And, and it's, to, it's to encompass everything you touch and everything you think about and everything you do should be centered around my laws and my words and teach them to your children. He to talk to them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you get up. Write them on the doorposts of your home. Why? Because if you write my law on your home doorposts, it's forever covering your family. It's forever touching your home. The door was an important part of everything that surrounded the people of Israel. So he takes the slave to the door. And his ear is pierced to the door. What's why, why the door? Well, because it represented the whole family, but it also represented an opportunity. Because he took them to the door of the home, and while the master is doing this ceremony, the slave is looking out of the door to the rest of the world. And what the slave is seeing is he sees everything out there that he's saying no to. He's looking at it like this last moment before he makes the final decision. And the, the master takes him to the door and says, okay, look at it all out. Are you sure you want to do this? Yes. Yes, master. I love you. I love this family. I want to be part of this family for life. Are you sure? Look at it out there. So you can have that nice piece of property on the hill over there. You can see how it looks over the Sea of Galilee. You can have. That could be yours if you worked hard enough. Are you sure? You could have your own slaves. You could, you could do this for somebody else. Are you sure? This is what you want to give up. Are you sure? And he takes them to the door and he shows them everything in the world. Everything that could be his if he worked hard enough. But the love for his master burned brighter in his heart than the hope of gaining some kind of property or some kind of goods elsewhere in the world. And he looked at the world and he said no to all of those opportunities. He looked at the world and said no to every one of those things that called him. All the gold in the hills, he said no. All the green grass on the side of the hillside that he could shepherd his flocks, he said no to. The house that he could buy down the street, he looked out the door of the master's house and said no. I love my master. Pierce my ear to the door of this home. When he was first taken in by his master, he was lonely. He was destitute. His hands were empty. His children's stomachs were distended from hunger. Their clothes were tattered and torn. Debt had ravaged their family. Hunger gnawed on the backbone of their life. And they realized that these last six years, they've never been happier. They've never been more at peace. They've never been more comfortable than they've ever been before. This has been a turn, turning moment, a turntable moment in their life. And, and now they are, they are ready to make a lifelong commitment to this. Jesus said it like this. Therefore, I tell you, take her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he is forgiven little, loves little. See, I think, there, this, what does this story have to do with me, Pastor? I think when you come to God, it's a lot like that man who was destitute and poor. 
when you come finally make your way to an altar of repentance I, I don't know too many people that go to an altar of repentance without some kind of sense of their own brokenness I don't know too many of us that have come to the, the, the altar and prayed a prayer God I'm, I'm doing so well but I think if you were an addition to my life I'd be doing even better I think those who really come to that place of prayer and repentance come with a sense they've got a mirror in front of their own face and they go, ah, I am blind, I, I am broken, I am desperate, I am stressed, I am consumed with fear and I'm weighted down with guilt and shame. And there is, there is, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Matthew 11. And I will give you rest. Jesus used shipping terminology. When you see a ship, have you ever seen a ship and it has two colors on the bow? It has the darker colors on the top and maybe a red or a blue line below. That, that, that isn't there just to make the boat look pretty. That's there to let those know that when the, when the water line touches the paint that changes color, that ship is now adequately laden with goods. You can't put another thing on that ship. But Jesus, and, and it's there for, for, for the sole reason of if you put too much on the ship and the color line goes below the water while it's in the dock, do you know the ship is going to float on the on the bay? It's going to float on the river fine. But as soon as it gets out into troubled water, that ship is going to capsize because it's heavy laden. It has too much in the ship, for it, and it's weighing down. So when a storm comes, it's going to knock the ship over, and everything's going to be lost. So Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You've got too many cares, too many weights. Too many burdens weighing you down that the first storm you encounter in life, you're going to be capsized and your life is going to, be, going to be in real trouble. So Jesus said, come unto me and I will give you rest. I'll take off some of those heavy burdens you're carrying. I'll carry the shame for you. You don't have to carry it anymore. I put it on my back and went to a hill called Calvary and I nailed it there for you. All those sins you're carrying, the guilt you're carrying, the shame you're carrying. I'm going to take it on and I'm going to give you honor in its place. I'm going to restore something to you. You come to Jesus like that slave. You come to Jesus like that individual who was weary and broken and bruised and, 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 and Jesus restores and renews and heals and delivers. Just like just like that slave that came to him for the first time. But after a while, I believe the Lord takes you to the door of the church and says, see the world out there. See everything you can have. Are you sure this is the place you want to be? God take, allows us multiple times in our relationship with him to come to the doorway of decision. We get doorways of opportunity. We've been talking about those, and I believe we're going to walk through some of those opportunities in the coming months and years. But God also takes us to the door of our relationship with Him and says, look at the world. Look at everything you can have out there. He allows us to get tastes and see what is also back out in the world. And He says, are you going to go out there or are you going to stay in here? There comes a moment in our walk with God that brings us to an open door. 
And we can either go back to the world, we can go back to that lifestyle and try to make it there again. Or we can say, no, Lord, I'm yours forever. I'm going to be in your kingdom forever. I want to be part of your kingdom forever. I'm going to surrender. I'm coming to the door of surrender and I'm going to call you Lord. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 miraculously. He walks on water, delivers his disciples from a great storm. And then he, when he arrives on the other side of the water, the group of people that he fed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee follow him around, meet him on the other side, and Jesus looks at them and he recognizes something about their spirit and he says, I tell you the truth, you don't want to be here because, because you, you love my words. You want to be here because you're waiting for the next meal I'm going to miraculously produce for you. You, you just want the miracles and the signs. You don't actually want the relationship. Now Jesus did that miracle feeding 5,000 people with, with miracle loaves and fish on the other side for no for free. It was, it was freely given. And they freely received it. But Jesus recognized the condition of their heart. They weren't really sold out to following him. They just wanted more miracles. They, they weren't really sold out to living with Jesus for the rest of their days and following his word. They just wanted more signs, more bread, more fish. What else can you do for me, Lord? What else can you put into my bank account, God? What else can you feed me? What else can you bless me with? What other song can you sing that's going to tickle my ear and make me worship? What other, what other kind of message are you going to preach that's going to inspire me and make me feel good and, and give me a hope for prosperity and a future? No, no, see, Jesus recognized their hearts said, I just want the next miracle. I just want the next sign. And they said, well, no, Jesus, we want you. We want the, the bread you, you made. We want the, we want the fish. Jesus looked at them and said, I am the bread of life. And if you're going to be my followers, you've got to eat my flesh, drink my blood, and be part of me. And everyone went, ooh, that, that's weird. That's a hard saying, Jesus. What does that mean? And we listen to that and we go, yeah, that's that, I'm with them. That's kind of a weird thing to say. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. That, that's, that's odd. What do you mean literal? No, it was poetic. Jesus was saying, you've got to literally become part of everything I do. Everything I say, everything I teach has got to get so ingrained into you that it becomes part of your own body and blood. It becomes part of you because everything that I'm saying is life and spirit and, and you've, got to, you've got to somehow get it into your soul. And after a long conversation, they said, is this not just the son of Joseph? We know who his mom and dad are. What is he talking about? Who is this guy anyway? And the Bible says that many, many disciples left him that day. Many disciples left him because of the hard sayings of Jesus. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he says, all these people are leaving, guys. All these guys, I brought them to the doorway of decision, the doorway of surrender, and they're all going back out into the world. They like the bread and the fish. They like the, the clever sayings and the, the, the fun teachings. But now, when it came time for actual commitment, they're walking out the door. So Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Are you going to? And they looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, what you said was truly a hard saying. We don't understand it all. We can't put two and two together sometimes when you speak. But one thing we know, 
We may not understand everything you do and everything you say, but something is settled in our minds. You have the words of eternal life. So Jesus, I don't always understand what you're doing. I don't always understand what you're saying. I don't always understand or comprehend your ways. But something I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, I can put my eternity in your hands and trust you with the stuff I don't understand. See, surrender is that you're never going to fully understand why God. Why God? There's always going to be a why did God let this happen? Why did God let this transpire in my life? You're going to come to pastor for counseling. I'll do my best to listen and empathize and cry with you when you're crying and laugh with you when you're laughing. And I'll try to talk with you and, and work it through. But there may be times where you come to me and I say, I don't know why. I don't have an answer why. But I know you can put your eternity into the hands of Jesus. And you can trust him with the stuff you don't understand. And real surrender comes when you look at him and say, I don't know why. But I still trust you. I don't understand what but I'm still going to lean on you. I don't know what you are saying. I don't even understand everything in your word, but I'm still going to follow you. You can call Jesus your Savior, and I'm closing with this. We could all stand. You can call Jesus God. You can call Jesus your healer. You can call him your deliverer, and so he is. You can call him your friend because he is one that sticks closer than a brother. You can call him your father because he is. You can call him comforter, counselor, waymaker, miracle worker, light in the darkness. That's who he is. You can call him all of that and you can experience on him in every one of those ways. But ask yourself the question today, can you call him Lord? Can you call Jesus Lord. You might refer to him as a miracle worker. You might refer to him as your, your God. But is he your ruler? Does he call the shots in your life? Does he define your worldview for you? Does the spirit of the word of uh, the spirit of God and the word of God have priority in your decisions? Do you consult the word of God? Or the latest advice from Google? Do you pray or do you worry? And just try to figure it out for yourself. Do you call a friend to seek advice before you turn to God's word and say, what does God have to say about this? Are you interested in miracles and signs or in a covenant relationship with Jesus? How much of not my will, but thine will be done. Do you pray? You can call Jesus a lot of things, but can you call him Lord? Why such a heavy message this morning, Pastor? Because with every door of opportunity, there's always a door of surrender. Are we going to devote ourselves for life to Jesus? Regardless of what, how, what we know or how we figure it out or what we understand, but are we going to come and fall on our face before God and say, Jesus, you are my God, but you're also my Lord. Can we find a place of prayer this morning? Maybe you need to come to this altar 
Surrender yourself to Him. Surrender yourself to Jesus. Whatever you need to do, wherever you need to pray, would you find a place of prayer this morning? Find a place of surrender to the Lord this morning.